Uganda's lion population. This is the Wild Eye Podcast. Hey everybody, my name is Jerry, I'm from Wild Eye. Now in this episode, Andrew catches up with Alex Briskowski, a conservation scientist, photographer and cameraman from Natal in South Africa. Over the past 10 years, Alex has filmed, photographed and studied African lions, leopards, jaguars and caracals across three continents. Alex's most recent science and film work explores assessing densities of lions and other carnivores in Uganda, the benefits of carnivores on human health, and mitigation strategies for human carnivore conflict. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Alex, hey man, how's it? Hey, how are you doing? Good. How, how's life, Andrew? Yeah, good, thanks, man. And you? Yeah, yeah, no, lekker. Yeah, just... Um uh just here in australia i just got back from from rwanda and uganda so um yeah okay. nice to be back with family sounding very south african with a house it and lacquer yeah very <laughs> durban yeah that's it um so i thought we'd start with just a little bit of background uh your photography and film obviously that's going to appeal to our audience um science and then how science and the arts have been combined into kind of what you are doing at the moment with your storytelling and raising awareness, but uh, playing to both fields. Would that be a fair kind of summary of your your kind of role and skill set at the moment? Yeah, I, I think um, sort of sort of started as a conservation scientist. So I, for those people listening, so there's a beautiful campus in the very south of South Africa called uh, formerly called Sarsfeld. It's yeah. now the Nelson university uh, school of natural resource management but that's where i sort of uh, started all of this i got to work on a population of leopards in and around those forests around my campus which was magical then i worked with guy bomb uh, from panthera on on his leopard program and trophy hunting work up in northern Natal. and then for my phd it was up in uh, queen on the lions but uh, yes i've been very lucky to have some opportunities with the camera I, I, um, in the last five years. More recently, I haven't done enough shooting, although I constantly want to do it. I've kind of gone back to the science role, um, but maybe I'll get to pick up a camera. I don't know, at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting one because um, I think for, for many years, science was confined to these uh, kind of scientific articles and journals and and that's where they they went to rest and it didn't really translate to the masses um and it wasn't really put out to the public but you know through photography and raising awareness i remember i think it was during COVID, you shared an image of um that lion in uh, queen elizabeth national park with all the the wounds and the treatment that it she'd received um that sparked massive awareness around some of the challenges so do, do you think that mm. there is quite a, a role for photography and, and film to play in raising awareness and in conservation in general? Yeah, it's a good question, Andrew. I, I don't know. And I think actually it's possibly part of the reason why I think a lot of my own activity on Instagram has declined over the last two years. I, I, I think there are some rare examples and cases where, I mean, you've got to look at this from a kind of scientific perspective, right? And the scientific perspective is, okay, so you have a world where we have the Instagram and the TikTok and whatever it is, and people are getting exposed to this stuff, right? So you, your hypothesis is, okay, this is having some effect. 
this is like potentially raising dollars through tourism maybe it's getting people to donate money and then there's the alternative of the counterfactual where that doesn't exist i think where i've struggled and where i kind of hit a saturation point with all of the social media stuff and the photography and film stuff was i didn't really see a tangible conversion of likes and comments to action and maybe that was just my own fault because i didn't know how to somehow you know kind of uh, shepherd people from those actions to 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 actually acting mm. um so i think from a personal standpoint that's always been something that i've been kind of speculative speculative of yeah but i think in the broader scheme you're probably right i think you know photography and film can catalyze us to move and and i think that's the the biggest thing is we don't know what our how bad our world would be if we didn't have these platforms and these photos out in the world because we don't know how people would would behave necessarily if they weren't exposed to all of that yeah that makes sense and it, it is you know uh, i think the other side of social media is that everything has a very short lifespan um, in that world and you know even something like rhino poaching and the crisis that we face here in south africa uh, there's fatigue that creeps in very quickly and it drops out of the news and out of the spotlight and for some reason, if it's not in the spotlight, it's assumed that it's no longer happening and it's uh, been resolved when in actual fact, it's just no longer newsworthy and people have become numb to the message. Um, and and that's where you know, the people are, who are on the ground are left uh, without the resources once again and having to try and fight that good fight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, what do, what do you think? What do you think of the in your own work as a, as a photographic guide and conservationist what do you what do you think the role of those things are and, and have you got any kind of examples where your own work has has done that uh it's a, it's a good question um and there's there's a lot of guys out there who will refer to themselves as conservation photographers um and i think there's actually very few of them that are are really deeply entrenched in the conservation side of it and spreading awareness i think have my images promoted awareness around it I'm not so sure that the images and the content and the the travels that that I've been fortunate enough to do have resulted in a tangible difference. I think what what it has done is maybe showcased new and exciting areas to people who, like you say, may never convert in terms of spending tourism money to get there or uh, contributing to a cause. But it's probably because of my my background in conservation. We've run a couple of conservation-based trips with um, the likes of Panthera and Dr. Paul Funston, who was one of my lecturers, and uh, we've got another one coming up with uh, Dr. Shivani Bala into Samburu. Where there, those trips are aimed at making a difference, a tangible difference on the ground. And it's literally what you're saying. It's not just a tourism donation. It's here. Here are the bicycles for the Lion Guardians. Here are the new tents. Here are the solar panels to charge up goodies. Here is money for a Lion Kids camp. Here are book, books and binoculars for the herders that you're wanting to convert into guides and uplifting the conservation, uh, you know, the protected areas. So, um, yeah, I think I think the the images and the reels and all but, that but sort of stuff. So I think, I mean, don't you think also the the, I think if there's any like action where okay, like a photo or a video. Um, led to a conversion of someone putting money into your business and then that money flows back 
to Shivani or mm. to um, a, a field project, as you said, or even a local Ugandan tourism operator that's helping mm. you to manage your trip, that already to me is massive action because immediately, you know, um, at least what I see with my own work, you know, I mean, obviously it's very small scale, but just making small impacts on individual people's lives, socioeconomically, just putting money into their hands, money into the hands of a Ugandan tourism ranger. Mm. Uh, we've got a paper coming out now about this exact thing where we basically had rangers in the in the delta of Murchison doing a lion survey, just their own work, and we were topping up their salary. It's It's stuff like that that, you know that little top up it's not a lot it was a couple of hundred bucks 300 us dollars a month mm. but if you look at their salary scale that's like 40 percent more than they were earning mm. that's 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 these are small tangible things to individual people on the ground and i think as a collective those things make the change so i think any kind of conversion of a photo a video and where those dots are joined I don't know if I'm making sense, but I think that's that's key. I think we we often maybe as a in the industry because obviously uh, conservation fees uh, that are paid to any areas that we visit, you know, that's part and parcel of of any tourism package. And I th I think there's probably a gap in terms of being able to explain to people what happens to that conservation fee, where it all goes. You know, it's a stock standard mm. thing, and I think that's where, exactly. for for example, the Mara Triangle Conservancy. I mean, they put up their monthly reports. It's up there for everybody to see. They will tell you exactly how many dollars came in, how many snares they've picked up, what their budget is looking like yeah. for the next year. And, you know, they're accountable, but it's very rare to actually see that. Um, see it line itemed on every invoice that you get when you send guests to a place. So your conservation fees are this per 24 hours. Um, and that's about it. You don't really know where it goes. But I do agree with you in that, the smallest of donations, call it $300 from someone, that can make a world of difference by putting a Blackview unit into someone's hands and being able to just have one more point of data collection out in the field. Um, so yeah. it doesn't always have to be these massive grants and um, donations from, you know, uh, huge benefactors. It's every little bit counts. I, I, that I firmly agree with, yeah. Um, Alex, Let's talk a little bit about uh, Uganda's lions. Um, I, am I correct in saying you guys recently did a, a quite an extensive census of lion populations in in the country? Yeah, yeah, lions, leopards, and hyenas. So lions, we've got a pretty good fix on uh, abundance and density now across the three parks where these things still remain. And then for leopards and hyenas, we largely got densities just because of the you know, size of the parks. It's very difficult to do park-wide. Look, you can do park-wide estimates for leopards and hyenas, but, um, you know, I, I think our broader team that works with me in Uganda and in Kenya, I think we're on the cutting edge of the science and we like to keep things honest in terms of, you know, what we call the, the, the bounds of our inference. So, um, you know, if I sample the Nile Delta, and I tell you that there's a density of 14 leopards per 100 square kilometers, I can't tell you that that's across the whole of Murchison, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we did six protected areas, 
and um, yeah, we've, it's the most comprehensive assessment of carnivores done in the country in, in ever. Yeah. What What were the most surprising kind of stats that came out of that study for you? Something that caught you off guard, or that you hadn't quite expected, or or sadly confirmed something that you had expected? Mm, uh, the place where you spent some time, Kadepo. Mm-hmm. So I remember when my fiance and I went up there, as you'll probably remember. Uh, Kadepo's uh, to the people listening it's a, a magical landscape Beautiful. and if you see it from the air it's it's really quite a remote place and um, very low human population densities generally I mean you get these isolated pockets but not, nothing like western and northwestern Uganda so very low densities of people pretty good densities of wildlife as you were saying in places like the Nairos Valley so when my fiance Anna and I initially went there in 2021 to kind of just look at it and scope it, we thought, oh, there's probably going to be good, decent numbers of lions. Mm. And what um, my team, which was headed by Bosco Atukwatse, Oren Cornel, and um, about eight different Uganda Wildlife Authority ranges, what they found in 110 days of sampling, which is really the upper bound of how much time you can scientifically spend in an area before the estimate becomes a bit shoddy because of the closure assumptions. But they, they found that lions had, you know, they're in some kind of functional extinction event there. Um, you know, five individuals detected 16 times, sure. uh, despite the fact that they drove four and a half thousand kilometers searching uh, mm. across the park in the Naris and in Kadepa. Um, and then what a lot of the action on the ground suggested is that those lions actually been probably targeted for their body parts. So mm. we found some lions that were poached in meat sacks, um, which is crazy because you probably remember, you know, the big herds of buffalo, decent herds of, um, I'm trying to think what else is there, some zebra there, Hard there's some hartebeest, yeah. um, there's some oribi there, um, and Hob- you kind of, yeah, and you think, hey, man, th- this is going to be good. Yeah. There's just something, something's decoupled in that system. It's completely flown under the radar. So if you don't mind me just saying, um, uh, I don't know what the next question is, but a lot of people often um, say, you know, are you going to count these things into extinction? And this is sort of, sort of really what I've been trying to push for the last seven years of my life through my PhD, through my MSc work on leopards is Kadepo is a good example of what happens when you don't monitor, when you don't keep an eye on the ground closely. See, the problem with Kadepo, when you drive around there, as I'm sure you remember, the lions that you do see will be amongst the most iconic sightings you will ever have in your life because Mm, the lions... Rocky outcrops. On these outcrops so it, it literally is the real world lion king but there's a problem so you you have these what we call these higher detection rates so de- high detection probability because you're seeing them on the rocks the problem is if you're not paying attention to who that lion is you will conflate those two things and you will say oh lions are doing well mm. and and this is really what we've been trying to sort of tease apart is trying to put good scientific methods and and systems into these parks across Uganda over the last sort of 20 months and trying to get the wildlife authority to to adopt them so that every year or every two years, 
there are these sessions of you know sentinel work 30 you know about 90 days and people are looking for lions and they just they're trying to get a grip of how those cats are doing on the ground that's just it's so critical it's the equivalent of a of a heart rate monitor mm, you know, early warning system hey yeah, yeah exactly yeah 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 and I mean, just in the context of Uganda, this was something else that really struck me, having you know flown up to Kadepo, flying to the west. I mean, it's a massive country. Um, in terms of its neighbors and thinking about sources and sinks and, and you know just pressure, to have South Sudan to the north of the Kadepo and to share that border with the, the DRC, I mean, how much of an impact is the, the instability in those countries and those neighboring lands having on lions in general in Uganda? Uh, so I think it's all dependent on which park you're looking at. So I think in Kadepo, I think lions are probably, if there even are lions up in the Kadepo Game Reserve. So for people that are listening, Kadepo Valley National Park is the Ugandan component of a, essentially a transfrontier area. And that's about, about 1,500 square kilometers. It's obviously much larger because there's a lot of unprotected land around that's perfectly suitable for lions. But that opens up onto the South Sudanese Kadepa Game Reserve. And that's, to my knowledge, I think that's 2,800 square kilometers. So so collectively, you know, that's nearly 5,000 square kilometers of land. But from what I understand, um, some of our colleagues from the Njojo Foundation, Krista Breff, has done some exploratory work in the Sudanese side. Mm-hmm. And apparently the bushmeat crisis there is just off the charts. Uh, guys are just hammering anything that, that moves uh, in terms of poaching, snare poaching. Mm. Um, on the Queen Elizabeth side, it's a very good question. Insecurity, yes. Uh, Virunga Foundation, Virunga National Park, you know, it's arguably the most uh, dangerous protected area on planet Earth. I think there's been more rangers that have been killed there than most national parks combined, you know, if you were to be comparing, like, localized areas mm. um but i think probably my, my suspicion is lions are probably even doing better there um just based on how dire the situation is in queen elizabeth you know we've i've monitored that population in queen uh, during my phd and now more recently with another with a with a bigger team and we've just started our third round of work to just kind of try and install this culture of monitoring and we're seeing declines of like 50 percent every four years um so i think lions probably in the congo i mean we don't know but uh they're probably doing i i I don't know my hypothesis would be probably you know we don't know but maybe even better than on the ugandan side you know yeah i I don't know but that that would be my suspicion um it sounds like from mustafa and sabuga's work on that side that they have quite a few lions yeah that's interesting. And and I mean, if we move a little bit further down mm-hmm. and speak about Murchison and, um, you know, you, you said that uh, the work that you've done there, lines are, are thriving in Murchison. Is that the kind of the... Thri- thriving in localized areas. Okay. I would not say thriving as a necessarily whole. In, 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 in the, you know, for the people that are listening, Murchison is, you know, according to the world uh, database on protected areas, protectedplanet.com, Murchison's about 3,700, but that broader area is close to 5,000, you know, with the Bodongo and Karuma and that broader landscape. And what we're seeing is that there's these these flushes of high densities 
so the tourism area that you were talking about with the oil pits that's actually off the charts it's some of the best lion territory in africa but it's pretty small it's mm. about 300 square kilometers you move across the tar road that you were talking yes. about that big four lane fucking oil <laughs> highway <laughs> yeah that thing um and your you know your detections and your densities just fall off a cliff they they're about a quarter of what they were on just across the road um but still probably 2 220 maybe 250 going towards 300 lines there was parts of murchison we didn't get to because of forests right. mm. but yeah so so a lot better um comparatively you know kadepo 23 queen maybe 40 lions you know so um yeah that's the sort of situation in the country and and then when we start to look at that ishasha sector which you know that was a, a real dream come true for me such a beautiful uh part of uganda the landscape those yeah. beautiful fig trees and um and then you know one of the things that struck me when we were there was literally just how thin a strip that park is once you get down to that bottom part with the drc on the western side and then mm. communities um to the east and so, just, so on that point i must stop you because the, yeah. the best way that i've ever heard somebody describe what you just said was a guy you probably have heard of ludwig schiefert he's been running the longest lion conservation program in queen elizabeth he called it the lions are stuck between the saucepan and the fire yeah you know threats to the east and to the west as you yeah. said this narrow strip of land sorry go on no no and that, that's exactly it it's a, i think that's a great analogy for anyone who isn't aware of where this ishasha sector is and you know what it's obviously famous for is these uh, these lines that habitually will climb these trees and um uh, I, I you know it's a it's probably a, a wrong um, analogy but you know we we got in there that afternoon and we were very lucky there was a lioness with a, a youngster sub-adult with uh, with her in a tree and uh, we we milked that before heading to camp, and then we went straight back out there that afternoon and spent the entire afternoon with them until the sun sank below the horizon, and it was just magical. It was really, really special. Um, and then we didn't see them again. So the whole of that next day, we searched, and there was just, you know, couldn't find them. And I, I couldn't help but shake this feeling that, you know, it's the chances of them disappearing uh like what is the number of lines left in that area and are they really on yeah. that knife edge i think I they might are be... on the knife edge. yeah i think they are on the knife edge just because of um there was a couple of tragedies that struck that area so you know if you chat to mustafa and Zubuga, who arguably knows those lines better than anybody in uganda because he's kind of spent just so much time there um mm. so you chat to him about 18, 20 years ago, you'd still see prides of, you know, like that big fig tree pride, which you saw Julia, which is really the last remnant of that. Um, I think he said 23 lions in a tree at one point. I mean, there's one one pride, and then there were the, the Kigezi lions, which you probably drove down. There was a, you probably remember, there was like, like a fork in the road, like about 30 kilometers up, you know, as you, I don't know if you came from Bowindi or if you came from the north of Queen. From the north down, yeah. Yeah, so if you north down, basically after the forest ends, yep. Maragambo, you have that kind of savanna. That area is called the Kigezi Game Reserve. 
Now, I don't know if there are still lines there. We're going to find out this this in this next census. But basically, there was always a pride there. And if you sort of track, so when I was there in 2018, when I was doing my PhD, we knew of the fig tree pride. I think there was about four. Then that got up to about seven because one of the females had cubs. And eventually, when my fiance Anna and I went there, we shot a film for National Geographic which was like a sequel to tree climbing lions. And then we saw 14 lions. So like, we were like, wow, this like this, these lions are coming back and then they got poisoned. Mm. Um, and it was an interesting poisoning event because they were definitely targeted for their body parts and they were, they were poisoned in the middle of the tourism area. So exactly where you were driving. Uh, and then the pride fractured and, and splintered and, um, yeah some of them i don't i don't really know what happened like then a couple of them were caught in snares and jacob moved up to the north and it just it basically dissipated what you saw um there is some still some movement of of males coming in from the congo but as you say they they definitely are on the knife edge i think yeah it's 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 tragic to to hear these sort of things and uh, you know the the impact that a poisoning event like that can have on a pride and how it just fractures and you know taking out dominant males and you then get animals starting to move over longer distances and fragment and uh, possibly moving into communities i don't know um uh, how much human wildlife conflict is there in uganda with lions predating on livestock it's mainly like a secondary thing. The biggest thing is actually, I mean, obviously it's it's massive. It's the reason why lions have gone extinct in most of the places across the yeah. country. But yeah. uh, there's a far bigger threat, and that's um, the threat of yes, bushmeat snaring, so yeah. snaring and, and gin trapping. Uh, you know, these big bear traps. Um, that that is rife across the parks, and um, you know. Places like Murchison Falls, I mean, you, you're looking at, ironically, in the Delta, some of the highest densities of snares anywhere in Africa. It's like 56 snares per square kilometer or something. Mm. Um, ironically, there, though, because of the NGOs working in that area, you know, I think they're in, in that part of the park. The guys are setting snares at a high density, but then a high density has been removed because mm. of the effort. The effort. Put in. But that isn't, I don't think that same effort has been put in the other parks. There's just no, not the capacity to be able to do that. Well, sure. And, you know, I think for anyone who's listening who, you know, you hear the, the term bushmeat um, and for for a lot of people, certainly the guests that I've been chatting to, they, you know, they see it as a, a small subsistence thing where someone's taking a diker and, you know, it's going to feed his family. But it's it's a commercial scale in across the continent i mean places in yeah, zambia there's syndicates that are doing this i mean in murchison i've got some photographs somewhere on iphone um where uh i've actually taken some photographs of bundles of snares that have been removed and what's interesting if you look at those bundles of snares you'll see markers on every snare you'll see a particular type of cloth that is tied onto that snare and every cloth color belongs to a different syndicate of snare setters oh. so that commercial element that you're talking about that's that's that and yeah no the people are not just coming i mean sure there is some of that where people are coming to just you know feed their families but this is happening at a far larger mm. um you know macro i mean you know um, you know the village scale a larger macro scale yeah 
And the biggest challenge there is that these snares are unselective. So things like wild dogs, yeah. like lions, like leopards, exactly. never mind yeah. the fact that uh, they can completely decimate prey bases in some of these areas. Um, but the actual predators are are being taken out with these snares. And I guess that's where, um, you know, the bycatch, um, they probably see it as a bonus to get some lion parts because the trade in lion bones and, you know, mm. that's a lucrative industry in, its, in itself. So, yeah, they, these uh, these animals are certainly up against it. So if anyone's listening and they're thinking and they hear that term of you know bushmeat, it's <laughs> it's a much greater problem than I think most people realize. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, Alex, as we as we bring this into land, um, you you mentioned you're going to be getting some more data out of um, I think was it uh, Queen Elizabeth National Park? You were saying looking at getting there. Um, you've just completed a massive census, and you're saying that you know every couple of years we need to be keeping our finger on the pulse to see what's happening. What what are your plans, and you know who are the organisations that are involved, and um, who's funding this? Yeah, so it's a good question. So I, okay, so the first, the kind of last tale of that. So who's funding this? So again, if I bring it back to the medical example, um, uh, hypothetical, you've got a best friend, their father has a heart attack. Um, there is no uh, monitoring machine to be able to monitor heart rate, breathing rate, you know, what that immediately means is you, you cannot see whether the patient's got tachycardia, brachycardia, and then obviously you can't make any kinds of decisions on, on, on the management in terms of how you deal with, with a dying patient. Mm. Ironically, if you take that analogy and you take it to the, the monitoring of these lion populations, it's a very difficult thing to fund. Um, monitoring, the act of monitoring and trying to um, ecologically audit these populations and areas. It's not something that resonates in the donor community, despite its incredibly important uh, value. So I can draw another example. So um, up until Nick Elliott, Arjunga Paraswamy, and the broader KWS's work in, in the Masai Mara, where you've been, there was a long-standing view that the Masai Mara lion population had pretty much halved by 50% in a 14-year period. There was one survey that was done in the late 90s, and then there was one that was done in sort of 2014. And literally, the two surveys used pretty bad methods, and they didn't uh, standardize the way that they censused the lions, and this blew up in the media. Masai Mara, 50% lion decline, chaos. Mm -hmm. It turns out that that's the most stable population of lions anywhere in Africa. There's 17 lions there. There's 412 lions that live there. Yes, there's regional flux in your Mara Triangle across the conservancies. Yes, lions go up and down. But overall, as a population, they are the, the, the sort of lifeblood of the Kenyan landscape. 400 cats, incredibly high densities. So do you see that just that act of, of having that, that, just monitoring that pulse and averting chaos in the media and in the eyes of the conservation managers on the ground. That's why this action is so important. And uh, sort of, I guess, my broader ambitions and goals is I would like to see these kinds of monitoring systems applied, not only for lions, but for other species in landscapes of interest and for species of interest. Um, mm. And I guess the, the broader objective of our team is to try and install and infect that culture 
of good scientific uh, sentinel work across these protected areas. And we're trying to do that now in Sri Lanka for leopards. Uh, I'm thinking about doing something for, for elephants there also. Um, but first and foremost, I, I want to see this live on in Uganda, uh, you know, beyond anything that I do as a scientist. I want to see the, the Wildlife Authority adopting this and, and funding this and, and doing this. Yeah. Mm. So, so I think that answers your question. Yeah. And maybe just to, to carry on with your analogy there, you know, obviously at a landscape level, that's that's where conservation efforts need to, to be focused. And if we go back to Kadepo, which is a place that I would love to return to, um, you know, that that's a, a bit of an island, really. Um, it's very isolated. And mm. <sighs> What's the medicine there? Are, are, would Ugandan wildlife consider reintroducing to get that that kind of population back up to a stable yeah. point and then monitor it? It's a, it's a good question, Andrew, and I, I don't want to uh, sort of leave this podcast on a black note, mm. a dark note, if you will. But what, what I think there's sort of two parts to that question. There's the reintroduction question and then there's the the sort of monitoring and mm. ecological tax man auditing side of things. And this is something that we don't talk about enough in conservation is a lot of the time, these conservation NGOs that are working and operating in these areas. Andrew, if you and I start a safari business together, if after year two, our balance books are in the red <laughs> and we're not getting any clients mm. and we're $30,000 in debt, we close up shop, mate. Yeah. We're out of business. The NGOs that are operating in a lot of these landscapes, there is no accountability. Lions mm. go extinct under their watch, and then mm. they ask for more money mm. to do reintroductions mm. for populations that they were in charge of in the first place. Mm. So I think it's important to – someone needs to keep these guys in check. That's the first thing. I'm not saying everybody. There's some incredible NGOs that are doing amazing work. Mm. But I guess that's the first thing. And then the second thing is before we reintroduce, we really have to try and diagnose what are the reasons that these areas lost these cats in the first place. In the place. first place, yeah. And if you can't stand those, I just think mm. it's 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 even worse the second time round that that second failure. You know, and we're seeing that with cheat, we're seeing that with cheetahs in India now. You know, a poorly planned, rushed introduction of an African asset that was given to the Indians, arguably for political, you know, there was a political motive behind it. And now, you know, we're seeing these cheetahs, we're seeing nine cheetahs dead in four months. Yeah. You know, uh, so yeah, anyway. That's no, and, no, and it, it's, you know, if you then add to the add to that, the fact that Kadepo is not really on the circuit, if you were to look at a Uganda as a destination, for most people, they don't even see it, they don't know about it. And um, that's assuming they even take the time to go and, and see anything outside of the primates. Um, you know, it, it's a challenge, yet there's lots of development up there. There's lots of lodges going up and, um, yeah, it's it would be sad. It, it's certainly that is a place that I would love to return to and to see with a, you know, a solid lion population in there. But again, I, I realize that there, there are several challenges with something like that, but um, I mean, your 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 point on the off the circuit is critical. You know, they have a very small budget and they are very out yeah. of sight and out of mind. So yeah, it is a management challenge of trying to get dollars into that place. Yeah, yeah, that's ultimately what what it all boils down to, isn't it? The more money you have per square kilometer to protect, to monitor, to manage, 
the greater your chances of actually being able to successfully conserve or preserve the wildlife in those areas. Yep, exactly. Excellent. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Um, what's thank next you for, for you? When, when are you when are you back to Africa and uh, what what's your next big project? Um, yeah, I, I've just been for I was just only there for uh, three weeks, but um, I'm working on a film project that I um, I can't say too much about just because of um, some some politics and um, uh, but it's I, I i was as i said you know i was trying to find an opportunity to use a camera and i'd kind of given up on photography but this film kind of presented itself to me so i'm very grateful for that and then i'm just trying to figure out what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast is how do i get more money to build these kinds of monitoring systems and get the Ugandans or the Kenyans or the Sri Lankans or whoever it is on the ground, uh, you know, that next generation to mm. adopt them and to fund. You know, we, 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 there's just not enough money, Andrew, going into paying the salaries of young, talented people that want to get involved in conservation. It's, um, it's, it's, it's probably the biggest challenge in conservation is we can't fund good people, you know. That's the that's uh, that's my next big thing. Trying trying to find fund this stuff. Yeah, that sounds sounds like a, a big enough challenge in itself. So Alex, thanks again for your time. Really really appreciate it. And um, if people want to learn a little bit more about your work and to get in touch with you, do you just want to share some contact details? Maybe there's someone out there who has a, a big blank check with your name on it. Oh wow, yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so I guess there's two things. So you can get in contact with me on just um, if you just type in my name, Alex Brachkovsky, on on Google, you'll find my website. You can get in contact on email. Um, if you do want to support, we have a sort of I'm a I'm a scientific lead and an advisor on on a small, very grassroots level kind of community um, conservation science project in Queen Elizabeth called the Volcano Safaris Partnership Trust. And and we have a, a team of Ugandan scouts that are going out and doing a lot of this monitoring work. And um, so, yeah, we're, we're trying to sort of get small pledges towards that. Um, yeah, those are the two ways that sort of, um, yeah, obviously always grateful for any support and, and, and contact. Yeah. Fantastic. I'll drop those links in the notes section of this podcast. So if you guys do have anything that you want to reach out to Alex for, please do so and uh, yeah, give him some support. Alex, thanks again, mate. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. I'll share this on my channels when it's yeah. out. Awesome.